Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You've never failed. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You've never preaching or the, the reading of the word Philippians chapter 1 verses 19 through 26 if you have a Bible flip there there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you also just to say if you are visiting with us this morning I think there's visitors cards in front of the pews in front of you please uh, grab one of those fill it out so you can find me or um, drop it off to uh, one of the people you see standing by the doors we'll get in touch with you answer any questions you may have about this church so Philippians 1, verses 19 through 26, week 3 in our serv- uh, sermon series on Philippians. 
the word of God says this. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now and as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to be, uh, to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary in your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So America, for all of its good history and also its black stains, if you will, is becoming post-Christian. Post-Christian means that Christianity itself, which used to be kind of the air that America breathed, a place where church buildings used to be found next to county courthouses and every town is an essential need for every community, is quickly retreating from front and center. Maybe rather it is best to say that this has already happened. It is not uncommon to find these old church buildings on main streets all over America to be nothing but a fancy Dunkin' Donuts or a restaurant or some other official county building. When these old church buildings empty out, it is because that church has died. In fact, over 100,000 churches, it is estimated, in our nation today are declining or in danger of closing their doors. People's cultural memories of Christianity are kind of confusing ones right now. They're confusing because, because of just how much our nation has rapidly changed the past few decades and it's difficult to enter into a previous generation's world because our nation carries little resemblance to itself even just 30 years ago. Today, to be Christian is to immediately be associated one way to a political party because everything is radically politicized, as we know that in our current times. Young people, not really understanding the true nature of Christianity, believe that Christianity is only about voting for conservative values and being something like pro-life. You can be conservative and pro-life in your political values and not be a Christian. I think we all know this. The reason why I'm talking about this is because the true nature of Christianity is becoming more and more at a loss in our culture. I'm going to argue that this might actually be a great thing. Between our radically changing world and also between the reality that COVID has left one out of three church members in America no longer attending the church that they were a part of before COVID. We are entering into a unique opportunity to really and truly ask the big questions about the faith that we confess. What is the church actually about? What is the actual true nature of Christianity? And is this an opportunity to attempt to return to those things as a way of reminder and refresher right now? I believe it is. This passage today is one of those kind of big blanket passages, kind of like what I call like a a junk drawer passage of Christianity that kind of contains everything in like one or two sentences, right? Uh, We must start over again. We must return to the basics continually throughout our Christian life and be willing to ask the questions, uh, uh, be willing to even question some basic assumptions that you and I might have concerning our faith and realize that a watching and hurting world and confused world needs Christ more than ever. 
It needs the church more than ever. It needs Christians who are living in Christ more than ever. But not just any church, not just some laissez-faire form of Christianity. I'm telling you right now that if you were to sit with anyone, almost anyone, and you were to read something like the Sermon on the Mount, in it, and you read it in full and you ask, what do you think about these teachings of Christ? If you were to read much of the gospel narratives to your neighbor, showing the grace and love of Christ and even the truthfulness of his words and how he extended it to those who were hurting most around him, I'm telling you, many would say, this guy's pretty awesome. This is, he's, he's pretty awesome. I, I love some of the things he's saying, right? Of course, the stumbling block is when Jesus says, I'm God in the flesh and I'm asking you to give everything and follow me. And that's throughout history, that's where the rubber meets the road, Right? But what happens when the message is is preached of Christianity, apart from a life lived in Christ, however imperfectly it may live, what happens when those two things are divorced? When we confess Christ, but our lives are not mirroring the things we are confessing. We are in danger of becoming, we are in danger of, um, oh no, my papers are out of order. You know, when I printed this off, I uh, realized that um, I didn't have page numbers Oh, man. Um, I don't know what to do here, you know, because I like making manuscript for my sermons, and so I'm just going to have to keep moving on here. Um, what happens is we live lives that do not mirror the things that we preach, and we lose um, uh, people's uh, understanding or their confidence in the things that we are claiming to be about. The reality is that God has visited us through Jesus Christ, Okay, We know that he has taken all of our infirmities on his shoulders. He has defeated the undefeatable death. He has given us the hope that in telling us that life really isn't about us, but rather about him, right? And so I want to share personally a couple of things out. Um, I'm aware that the loves of my own heart are often divided. I'm aware how quickly that they grasp at other things to fill the gap of desire in my own life, things that are not of Christ, but cheap things that are destined to perish, I know that I do not live these things perfectly myself. I know that not everyone who has known me can make the immediate conclusion that I am even a Christian or a pastor throughout my life. At 33 years old, I know that I have far, many, so many things to learn and to grow in, as we all do. But in the way in which Paul defines his own life in this passage, it's kind of piercing to the soul. It is piercing because it rings true. We read it and we hear it and we say, yes, that is how it's supposed to be, right? The things that we confess in our lives, they're to be essentially one, however imperfect that looks. They're to be united. When Paul says, he says, yes, that seems to be what Jesus is asking of us, right? Christianity has always been something outward facing. You cannot forget that. The reason why I harp so much on the greatest commandment, loving God and loving your neighbor, is because the summary of the entire book is found in that statement. How do you summarize the Bible? With an outward focused life on God and others around you. Well, who is God? Jesus Christ. He's a bridge of reconciliation between humans and God. We must love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and spirit, with the help of the spirit. And who is your neighbor? All other humans around you. And you are not in this picture. You are not in this question. And that's the crucified life. That's the crucified life. This is the changed life in Christ. 
And yet again, in repetition from last week's sermon, I don't really care if it's repetition because we need this repeated continually to you and I. This is the most difficult and hardest thing about being a Christian is to be more concerned for Jesus and others than you are about yourself. It is to be more concerned for the community than it is about propping up your own church. It is to know that you and the church exist for the sake of glorifying Jesus and loving Jesus and being a beacon of light to your community. That is everything. That is your life. And the thing I want to argue for this morning is this. Right now, that you and I should desire this life, this life I'm describing now, even more than heaven. Why? Because this world needs you. This is Paul's struggle in this passage. Earth or heaven? Right? We're going to get into this. It's very fascinating. This world needs your witness. It needs your testimony. It needs you, your fellow Christians in this room who are hurting and caught in spiritual poverty and are stricken by sin. They need you. They need your love. They need the truth spoken to them. They need your time and your care. There is such a thing as a deathbed salvation. The thief on the cross died within uh, just hours of confessing Christ, and he was indeed called out to paradise. Confession is enough for salvation, but however, for most of us when we confess Jesus, we still have a life left to live. If God considered to be in heaven is more important than to be here on earth, if that is indeed the point of being a Christian, to go to heaven when you die, if that's why we come to faith, wouldn't he just snatch you up immediately upon confession and just bring you up to heaven? But he doesn't. This is because he has a life for you to live right now in Christ to a world that needs you to live it. Our Christian faith is so much bigger than simply saying a prayer so we can go to heaven when we die. All that doctrine gives birth to, if we are not careful, is a cheap escapism that almost rejoices to see a world on fire knowing that you get to escape it and be better off one day. No, Jesus wept over Jerusalem and their hardness of heart. He weeps over America and its struggles, and its pain. And we are to look around us and notice that Christ is present in you. You are his body, his church, and right now we have work to do. Work not to escape from, but work to run towards. So let's look at this passage and break it down and see what Paul is trying to say here. Verse 19, he says, Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation in hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now and always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Reminders, Paul writes this, he's in jail, and he's rejoicing. He knows that his church is praying for him. He knows that he is also supplied with the Holy Spirit, who is applying all the prayers that's being made out to him. All these prayers will indeed turn out for his deliverance, as Paul says. It is easy to read this and think, well, Paul is obviously talking about deliverance from his nasty prison sentence and all the suffering he is undergoing there. So he knows that his deliverance from prison is nigh through their prayers and through the supply of the Spirit. But no, Paul doesn't mention anything about being delivered from prison here. You have to pay attention to read slowly. Rather, he goes straight to the topic of life and death. He knows that there are two things in front of them, either life or death, perhaps life in prison. Perhaps life out of prison, or perhaps a death sentence from his upcoming trial before the Roman Senate. 
He doesn't want to be ashamed in his confession of Jesus if these things were to come. And here we get a clearer picture of what he means by deliverance. He wants the necessary courage to face whatever comes his way, knowing that even if he lives on in prison and suffering or is released, that his confession in Christ will be maintained and matched by his life and work, regardless of his circumstances. And that he will be delivered now through that in life, through that manner in life. Or more difficulty, if he faces death, that he will still be unashamed of Jesus and with courage be willing to die in Christ. This is another astonishing thing, is it not? It immediately exposes one of the most uh, difficult things about being a Christian in America, I believe. And one thing that I believe can rob us of our power, our propped up world of comfort, where there's a pill for every ache and pain, and machines and medications that can prop up our existence to be as comfortable and as long as possible with technology continually aiming at making life more convenient and easier, our expectations always in the direction of comfort and convenience and suffering free so much that when suffering does come, we don't really know what to do with it. But we immediately pray for deliverance because God wants us to have a pain-free and suffer-free life, right? Because that's the life that Jesus had, Right? Where is our prayer for courage when a life of suffering hits you or even the face of death? Our reaction to COVID has really exposed this. Previous generations knew so much more suffering than you and I. I I say this as a way like we are a blessed generation. Like I'm not saying this is a bad thing. Like we are blessed, but this is also a giant hurdle for our spiritual maturity. But just play a, a little thought game with me here for a moment. Imagine you were born in 1900, 120 years ago. When you were 14, World War I would have started and ended on your 18th birthday, 22 million dead. Later that year, the Spanish flu hits and runs the planet for two years, 50 million dead. When you're 29, the Great Depression hits, unemployment hits 25%, GDP drops 27%, that runs until you're 33, the country almost collapses with the world economy. And then you're 39 years old, World War II starts, and you're 41, then our nation's brought into the war, and between your 39th and 45th birthday, 75 plus million are dead. Did you lose count? I've already lost count. That happened in the Holocaust. That kills six more million at 52 years old. Uh, you're 52 years old. The Korean War starts five million in Paris. We can keep going on and on. Only in recent times has death become something not front and center in our existence. Actually, possibly in human history. Only in recent times has suffering come to be not so commonplace for many of us. This affects our purpose in our living. We are a generation that does not know how to suffer well. Too often we pray for the escape of heaven and not for the courage to be unashamed in Christ, regardless if we are given life or death. It must be said, however, that there are many right now in our community who do live in suffering of brokenness, of loss and addiction and generational poverty. Unfortunately for many of us who live in extreme comfort, this includes myself, it is easy, if we aren't careful, to see those people as unclean and somehow guilty for their situation, just like the lepers of old in Jesus' day. Oftentimes for you and I, God does not want to relieve us of suffering. That's not a popular message to preach, right? Rather, he wants to grow us through suffering. Oftentimes God does not want you to be comfortable, 
but rather to learn how through hardship and difficulty what it truly means to look on to Jesus for hope, for your strength and for your joy. For the one who lived a life full of sorrows, the one who's deeply acquainted with grief. This is where the teachings of escaping this world and going to heaven does not equip you to face the world and its brokenness. Life is a fire of purification, and the Spirit is here to bring us through, reminding us that not only Jesus lived through his suffering and survived temptation and perhaps lived the most joyful and abundant life any human being could ever have lived, but he was risen from the dead, showing that our present state of suffering indeed is one of temporary nature. The hope that we have is that he is returning to make all of these things new. And our faith now is our allegiance to Jesus by his spirit who equips us to face these temporary sufferings and difficulties that he allows to happen to us. Such a life of renewal is what the world needs to see right now. The fact is that the way Christians face, the way Christians face both life and death is perhaps our biggest testimony. I'm going to say it one more time. The way Christians faith both, face both life and death is our biggest testimony. The way we face those trials and those moments is truly our biggest testimony to the power of the resurrection in our lives now. Our hope in Christ is proven when we embrace trials with joy. Consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith develops perseverance as we must allow that to finish its work in our lives that we may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. It offers us wisdom. If we lack wisdom, we need to pray for it. And that's a quotation, right, almost, from James chapter 1. And it's often says, like, if we need prayer or need wisdom, ask for it. In the context of that passage in James, that wisdom comes through suffering. So if you need wisdom and you're praying for it, God may allow you to go through some hard times to find it. Again, if Paul thought of himself first, right? I mean, how did Paul have this kind of mindset here? As we're going to see, how was he able to rejoice in jail, hoping for his deliverance, whether in life or whether in death, but seemingly not to be concerned about being freed from his prison sentence and of suffering? Again, we return to our formula of loving God and loving others. Again, if Paul thought of himself first, of course he would be laser focused on his own sufferings and his own chains and begging to be freed from them. But since Christ was first in his life, His attention was elsewhere on how his chains, we just saw two weeks ago, were spreading the good news. His chains were spreading the good news. And how he could still be of use for his fellow neighbors and churches and Christians while he still has breath. Yet he is also equipped to face death, knowing that even if he is destined to leave this world early, that he will gain something better than what he has in this life. This is how he states that in the following verse, one of those junk drawer passages, for to me, To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul applied a rhetorical device in the original Greek, Christos being Christ and Kratos being gain. It would have been this dramatic and almost rhythmic way to hear Paul's words. These letters were to be read aloud to the churches upon receiving them. To live is Christ, period. Life is Christ. When you think of life, you think of Christ, And this is all where the foundations of hope and joy in our supply of perseverance, of salvation and cleansing of sin and of presence that he promised he will never leave us or forsake us. Life is Christ. 
In Christ, you find the ability to persevere whatever happens and comes your way. Just like him, through tremendous suffering in this broken world, knowing that God is doing a new work and he will one day renew all things. And now through his redemptive work, he is even using all things to happen for your good. Like Jesus, your life now is focused outward on God and others, and that defines how you think about your own life, how you think about your own sufferings, and even about your own death. How could these things be a benefit to Jesus' kingdom? How can my life be a benefit to Jesus' kingdom? How can I suffer well for my family and my neighbors to see that? If I'm facing death, how can I die well? So everybody around me sees that my lips are still confessing my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ upon my last breath. Because you are not your own. These things are possible because you are not your own. You belong to Christ. Your life is Christ. And death is only gain. Because it means that you get to be with Christ. So whether you are alive, Christ, or whether you are facing death, even better. As we'll see Paul say, it's gaining Christ. Now this may be something new to your ears, but this is one of the very few, few references in our entire New Testament about heaven. We know that there. Uh, that, that we gain Christ somehow in this uh, state after death that is spiritual to get to be with him in heaven. But if you really do your studies, you will find very few references to heaven in our New Testament. We know a little awful about it. But somehow we have made heaven one of the most important topics as we think about Christianity. But that's a sermon for a different day. Back on topic. Gaining Christ is like gaining the missing piece of our humanity. It's the answer to all of our longings. Death becomes not just something to be afraid of, but rather something we can joyfully embrace as Christians, knowing that we gain Christ. One time a famous preacher asked this remarkable question, and I want you to really think about this. If Christ was not in heaven, would you want to go there? If Christ was not in heaven, would you want to go there? We could desire a place like heaven with the escapism mentality of, oh, as long as I am not in this broken old body anymore, as long as I'm not suffering, as long as his life will not be hard and difficult, and that all this kind of work for food and stuff can go away, as long as work will become a joy and not a burden, as long as people won't be mad at me anymore, my teeth don't want any more toothaches, and maybe I won't need glasses anymore, and I'll have a mansion with streets of gold, and yes, take me there, eternal life. Yes, Jesus. Where is Jesus in that? If we are honest, that sounds like the American dream on steroids, does it not? Psalm 16 says that in Christ is a fullness of joy. In his presence are pleasures forevermore. In him, we will be finally satisfied. All of your longings will find their satisfaction in Christ. All those things will be meaningless and empty without Christ, who is the very presence of God. All those things will only place you front and center, will place you front and center in heaven and not Christ. To die is to gain Christ, just like now is to live is Christ. I said that wrong. Now, Paul trails off on the few, one of the few soliloquies, that's a funny word, in the New Testament. He breaks down further some of his internal struggles with this as he lies in prison because he's a human being just like you and I. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. I have work to do if I'm here alive. I know that's good. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Literally, he's hemmed in on every side. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and be with Christ, for that is far better. We can raise our hand and say, amen, we know that is far better. We're not denying that. We know that's far better. Yes, Paul. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary in your account. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So he's hemmed in on both sides. He desires both life and death, not in some other kind of way, but in the sense that he knows the gain that lies beyond death, which we said is Christ. He longs to be with Christ, and of course he does. We long to be actually with Christ, for that is better Yet he knows he has his work still cut out for him, and he knows that there is still fruitful labor available in Jesus now. And here we see that master story as he's been visiting play into Paul's words once again. Paul drops any sort of escapism mentality. And this is where the doctrine of the resurrection again steps in. God will renew your life in that future day when he returns, and through his spirit, he's renewing you now. Paul knows that in the progress and joy of the Philippians, he can be aided in that. He can be of aid for them. He knows that gaining crisis in heaven is better, but he knows that his fellow Christians need him. So he says, you know what? For the sake of others here now, I want to choose here. I want to stay. Again, where is Paul's prayer for deliverance of his own suffering, of his own deliverance? Paul, once again, has forgotten about himself, and he has placed Jesus as the chief encompassing love as the great commandment said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. He also loves his fellow Christians, his neighbors, if you will, because, he, because of his love for God and knows that Jesus' display of love for God as our example was he laid himself down for us. And he says, I would rather give up right now actually being with Christ and to be with my fellow Christians, to serve and to love them and to disciple them. I choose earth right now, not heaven He'd really get that up for the time being and stay here just a little while longer to serve his fellow Christians. But Paul, that can mean more suffering. That can be more hardship. Who knows? And Paul says, I, yeah, maybe you're right, but I love them and they need me. Love God and others. It is a story of Christ. It defines Paul's life. It's how he viewed the world in his own existence. Listen, the entire Bible is filled with stories like this of men and women who embrace difficulty and trials in their life now for the sake of God and others. On the back end of the sermon here, to trick, the trick to many of these stories in the Bible is this. Oftentimes, embracing something difficult for the sake of others has no guaranteed outcome. And oftentimes, God is working in your life story to achieve his own outcomes. And as, as he is often, he is outside of time, looking on, he, knowing the end of his plan in your life, quite often you and I, stuff is happening. We're like, I have no clue what is going on right now. I don't understand what is happening I don't understand why life is difficult right now. Why hardship happens to us, yet God is working this, these things out for his own sake and for the sake of those around you. And he wants to mature you in the process for his own sake and for those around you. We can always assume this is happening. Always assume this is happening. This is our, one of our only hopes in life and death, is it not? Also, for the intentional times, when we stick our neck out for God and others, we, when we place God and others as our first and foremost love, oftentimes this may mean you get the short end of that bargain, that you draw the short straw. And oftentimes you may, in doing so, you may not see any immediate fruit or any return for your investment, if you will. In some extreme acts of generosity stemming from love within you, the recipient may just blow it off. And you think, well, that was really costly for me. You help and serve someone, and the burden was really intense for you to do it. 
And that person says, ah, cool, thanks. And you feel as if you expected more of some kind of response. But you know you must. And your love and hope in God says that you are doing it unto the Lord and not for your own benefit, but for the sake of your brother and sister in Christ, that they may actually continually to grow in his likeness and also for your neighbor who does not know Jesus, that they truly see what the love of God in Christ looks like through you. And here's a message with the good news from your own lips. Like Joseph in the book of Genesis, who was betrayed by his brother, spent 15 years or so in prison while being innocent, not guilty. The entire period of his 20s, he spent in jail for seemingly no reason, except later to realize that his betrayal actually led to the salvation of his own family and untold amounts of others. In this way, we can say life is Christ. For what other hope do we have to live? What other way can we embrace suffering? What reason would there be to persevere beyond suffering? Christ rose from the dead. He is King and Lord, the man of sorrows who conquered the grave. He is calling you right now to come and to die, to pick up that cross and follow him. And he has something in mind for those around you, and he wants to bring it about through you. As our master story shows, the death of Christ leads to newness of life. Death leads to life. Your life in Christ is a death. It's a living sacrifice to these things, but in your death, you will find newness of life. And that's possible now. Ladies and gentlemen, what I'm trying to say to you is your life now matters. Just like Joseph, he was sustained through prison through the darkest of times for the sake of others, even though this was unknown to him for many years. So then he could give a testimony in that day of God's faithfulness to him and God's faithfulness to those around him through his suffering. Read Genesis chapter 50. It's an unbelievable story. Esther was willing to barge in on the king risking everything, including her own death, in order to save her own people from certain death. The widow and foreigner Ruth, she left her family and her people to go with Naomi because she loved Naomi's God and knew that she needed to care for Naomi. She risked everything for her God and her, for her mother-in-law became a pilgrim in a foreign land. And in doing so, she became one of the great-grandparents of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah, also alone, aside from a few friends, preached the truth of God's coming judgment to his own harm, often weeping and lost in tears over the bitterness and hardness of his people's hearts and, and turning from God. His love for God and others cost him everything. We can keep going on and on and on. This is be one of the mottos and vision for Emmanuel, to live as Christ and to die as gain. To live as Christ, to love God and love neighbor, and love is costly and should indeed cost us everything. Love, far from being something cheap or just some fuzzy feelings, leads you to action, self-giving action. It leads you to set aside yourself for the sake of God and others. I want to read this to you because this is an amazing story. We'll close with this. It's from uh, a guy named Victor Frankl. If you heard of this guy, if you haven't, go look him up. Quite an amazing guy. A Holocaust survivor, famous psychologist, wrote an astounding book called Man's Search for Meaning. Unbelievable stuff. Please go read it. He was not a Christian. But he tapped into a lot of these things as he fought for survival in the Holocaust camps he was in. He goes into detail, brutal detail, about his experiences in the camps. Just describing just how insane his day-to-day -day reality really was. And how he saw people who would develop this hope to say, oh, in two months we'll all be released. And then two months would come, they weren't. And those people would almost, within weeks, they would die. And he... He was an academic. He started doing work. He would, he would say, well, we're, what, what role does hope have in life? What role does hope have in keeping people alive? 
and life? How is a mental and emotional state of hope give birth to life? How is, how is it that fevers and sickness and death almost always follows those who lose hope? And how is this all tied to our meaning as humans? There was a moment when he was walking line by line to a work site in the brutal freezing cold, shoeless with barely any clothing on, and a silence was among all the prisoners around him as the Nazis shoved him along. One of his friends quietly whispered, if only our wives could see us now. I surely hope they have it better off than we do. Victor's mind traveled to his wife, his sweet, beautiful wife of his youth that he was separated from and whom he would never see again. As he remembers this moment, he wrote in such beauty and power, a thought transfixed me that for the first time in my life, I saw the truth <clears throat> as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as a final wisdom by so many thinkers. The truth that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. A thought crossed my mind. I didn't even know if my wife was still alive. I knew only one thing, which I have learned so well by now. Love goes very far beyond the physical person of the beloved. It finds its deepest meaning in his spiritual being, his inner being. And we say, yes, Frankel. Oh, you're so close. You're so close. As Christians, we would just have a few more clarifying thoughts. We'd say the salvation of man is through God. And God is love. He's so close. Love does take you beyond yourself. And it leaves you behind. So if you are alive, you rejoice. There's opportunity to love God and love neighbors right now. And in doing so, will provide you hope, fulfillment, meaning, purpose. So much so that even knowing that heaven is better, knowing that as long as your heart is beating, beating that Christ has something for you to do now, and in that work is going to find the most meaning for your life that you could possibly imagine. And if you face death, you face it with courage, knowing that you are gaining Christ. But for now, God seems to think that he needs you here. It can be stated this way. I need you here. The person sitting next to you in the pews needs you. Your neighbor needs you. You are members of the body of Christ. The world needs Christ, thus the world needs you. And that, my friends, is the power of our hope. That is the power of the Spirit's work in our life, of renewal right now. So let's not pray to escape this world. Let's pray for opportunities this week and now to spread the good news of Jesus by loving and serving those around us. Let me pray. Jesus, um, I, I want to, I hope through my repetition and kind of circles, I know I did in this sermon, Lord, I, um, I want all of us to have that outward-focused life, to know that we are not of importance, that regardless of whatever circumstances like Paul that we're in, whether it's hardship and suffering or whatever it may be, that we know that to live now is in you and that dying only brings gain. Jesus, would you provide people who are in need of Christians in their life, who, who can see these things in display through us? Would you provide those people to, that we would run into them? Would you give us open hands of generosity to those who need it around us? Would you just make us be radically inconvenienced this week with those who need the love of Christ? May we be truth tellers, Lord, people who are evangelists telling those around us the good news, then we also do it as we lean down and wash their feet. 
May we not desire escapism to escape from the harsh realities that we are in, but we just continually run to you and say, God, I don't understand. I don't know what you're doing. This is so confusing. But just like so many men and women through, through thousands of years of history, that we are in good company. And that you have always vindicated your work in those people's lives by showing that you have good in mind for us and for those around us through the hardships that we are experiencing. So Jesus, may our first testimony in life be just that, our life. May we live in you, Jesus, this week. We love you so much. Thank you that you promise us that you are with us right now. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. And you, you will be every step of the way in this journey we have as being your disciples. Lord, you said to be your disciple means that we lay down everything. If we don't, we cannot be your disciple. There's people in this room right now that there's things they must lay down at the surface of their minds, that you would just flush that out of them. They'll grab somebody now and just repent to them and just ask for help to set these things aside for you, Jesus. So as our week comes this week, you have to give us opportunities to love others, to share the good news of Jesus. And we want Emmanuel to be that beacon, that lampstand of hope throughout the city. We love you, Jesus, so much. We pray this in your good name. Amen.